So we're continuing our sermon series on Paul's letter to the, the Ephesians. As I've said in past weeks, this letter was written to a mostly Gentile church in the city of Ephesus. It was a church that was learning to live together with people they had formerly distrusted, namely Jewish people. And Paul is going to talk in this passage about how peace can be found by these two groups that were hostile to one another. But by extension, his insights in this passage tell us about how peace always works. The reading is from the second chapter of Ephesians, verses 11 to 22. Listen now for what the wisdom of God is saying to us. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts on this, your holy word, would be both acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. In Christ we pray, amen. So we're entering the July 4th holiday weekend, and I thought I would tell you today a little bit about the town where I grew up in Mississippi, and it's complicated history with this holiday. Vicksburg, Mississippi was the location of a very important battle during the Civil War. In the summer of 1863, the Union Army surrounded Vicksburg and laid siege to it. They cut off all the supplies coming into the city, which meant the people of Vicksburg quickly ran out of food. They began to first eat mules, then dogs, then cats, eventually rats. The cannonballs were so constant that people began living in caves. And by the time Vicksburg surrendered, over 20,000 soldiers and civilians had been killed. Now here's where things get interesting. The date that Vicksburg surrendered was July 4th, 1863, Independence Day. But in the minds of people in Vicksburg, July 4th was not a happy date. It was the date of their humiliation. 
And so in Vicksburg, for about 80 years after the conclusion of the Civil War, July 4th was not celebrated. Now, I share this story to tell you first that our nation has always had divisions. You know, many people observe that we are divided today, but we have been divided in the past. But more importantly, I wanted to share this story in order to tell you why Vicksburg eventually changed its mind and began to celebrate the July 4th holiday once again, because in the 1940s, that's what they did. They got over their anger. It only took them 80 years. But the question remains, what changed? What was going on in the 1940s? Of course, it was World War II. And as historians have noted, World War II brought Americans together like no other time in our history. For those years in which America was at war, there was a sense of patriotism and a sense of civic-mindedness and a sense of collective sacrifice that we have not seen before or since. And in some ways, this might be counterintuitive because those years were very hard years. People were, were rationing food. Everybody had family members who were off fighting and dying. And yet, people got along better than they did before or after the war. Why? Well, here's where I'd like to share a theory with you, which I believe explains why Vicksburg started to celebrate July 4th and explains why Americans felt social cohesion during World War II. The theory comes from a philosopher named Rene Girard. And what Girard says is that the way human beings always find peace with one another is by having a common enemy. And so in Vicksburg, in the 1940s, people said, well, we still don't like Yankees, but the Japanese attacked us. We hate them more than we hate Yankees. We hate Germans more than we hate Yankees. Maybe Yankees aren't so bad after all. Now, what Gerard would say is that what people in Vicksburg were actually doing is they were taking all their anger and distrust that they had been harboring toward the north, and they were just transferring it onto a scapegoat. Japan and Germany. But the effect of that is that people really did come together to an extent. I mean, it's not a healthy way to bond with people. It's not an ideal way to bond with people. But Gerard says this is, in fact, the way human societies always operate. It's, it's hard to be in relationship with people. Conflicts inevitably come up. It's a lot easier to point a finger at, the, at a stranger, at some other, and say it's their fault. And then both you and your friend can take all of that conflict and project it onto this other person. I mean, think about politics today. This is the July 4th weekend. I think it's a good time to think about our own civic life. How do Republicans and Democrats bond with one another in today's society? Isn't it true that they feel close to one another because of their shared hatred of the other side? <laughs> Who are Republicans? Well, they're the people who hate Democrats. Who are Democrats? Well, they're the people who think Republicans are evil. If that's true, then Gerard was right. And his scapegoating theory also helps us to understand the relationships between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. In the passage we just read, Paul says that there was, quote, a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That's strong language, a dividing wall of hostility. There's a historian named William Barclay that gives us just one example of this. 
In the first century, when a young Jewish person did the ultimate forbidden thing and married a Gentile, their families held a funeral for them because they were considered dead to them. That is one example of how extreme this hostility was. And yet in Paul's churches, Jews and Gentiles held hands and prayed together and supported one another and loved one another. How is that possible? Paul says it's because of Christ. Listen to this. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Over and over again, Paul says that peace comes from Christ. But maybe not in the way that you might expect. It's not that Christ taught peace, although he did. It's that in some mystical way, in his flesh, in his body, in his life, peace becomes possible where once it was not possible. So what does that mean? What does it mean that peace is found in the flesh of Christ? It is a bit odd, isn't it? Well, not if you've read René Girard. Remember, Girard observed that in all human societies, peace comes from scapegoating. And I think on a very small scale, you can probably see this even in your personal relationships with people. Have you ever gotten together with a friend to gossip about somebody else? And have you ever noticed that that in kind of an unhealthy way, this made you feel closer to that friend? That whatever anxieties you had in your relationship with your friend, you could project them onto this other person, and because if you both don't like that other person, you can feel a little bit closer to your friend. That is scapegoating. And it happens both on a personal level and on massive social levels. For example, in World War II, at the very time that Americans were being drawn together by their shared distrust of Germany and Japan, something similar was actually happening in those countries. Before Hitler came to power, German society was very divided. There was a lot of partisanship. Hitler got rid of this internal conflict by finding a new enemy to scapegoat, the Jews. Hitler told Aryan Germans that the real problem was not their conflicts with other Aryans, it was the Jews. Everything was their fault, and in a very unhealthy way, this bonded German Aryans together. I mean, this is disturbing stuff, but have you ever wondered why concentration camp guards could murder Jews during the day and then go home to their families and kiss their children goodnight? It's because scapegoating is real. And it doesn't just happen with groups of people politically. It also happens with religion. Gerard says that this is the way all religions have always worked. All religions have said, we are God's chosen people. On the outside, those other people, they are infidels. We are good, they are bad, and because we judge those outside of our religion, we can be close to the people within our religion. We can blame all these other people for our problems. But something new happened, Gerard said, with Christ. Gerard was never formally a Christian, but his writings are so powerful in their support for Christian theology, he was honest enough to understand that Christian faith is different from every other tradition in history because suddenly along comes this Messiah who says, you've heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's scapegoating. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Gerard said, nobody had ever said this before. Love your enemies? The only way you can love your enemies is is if you stop scapegoating them. But then where does all your anger go? Well, now we're getting to the heart of it. Because what Christianity says is that you have to look at yourself. And you have to repent of your own sin. That is the antidote to scapegoating. Do you remember what Jesus said when he came to the rescue of the woman who was about to be stoned? He looked out at the crowd and he said, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. What he understood is that no one is without sin. He stopped the scapegoating in its tracks by calling people to repent. And he didn't stop there. Because God knew that this tendency to always point the finger at other people goes so deep that the entire scapegoating mechanism had to be uprooted, so he did something unbelievably radical. God became our scapegoat. He said, you want to blame somebody? Blame me. Put me on a cross. Kill me. And we did. We beat him. And we mocked him, and we took off his clothes to shame him, and we nailed him on a cross on a public road so that other people could walk by and also mock him. Gerard says that's why Christianity is unique. It's the only faith that challenges this universal tendency to always blame other people for our problems, because when you see that God went to the cross for you, you suddenly know that you're the one to blame. And that sounds like a terrible thing, and on one level it is. As I sometimes say, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's not easy to take responsibility for your own sin, but it's also the only thing that can set you free because if you don't know that you need a Savior, you're never going to look for one. So where does this leave us? Well, I mean, I think we need to look at how divided we are as a nation and ask, are we living up to Paul's vision for the Ephesians? Paul says again and again that peace is only possible in the flesh of Christ. Let me read from him again. For through him, both of us, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And then he says again, in him... The whole structure is joined together. In him, you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. He is our peace. That's the thing to remember. He is our peace. When you are feeling hatred towards someone, the best thing you can possibly do is to meditate on the cross. Feel your own complicity in that crime. Because the same sin that was in all of those people who nailed cross to the Christ is in us. I mean, we all know it. We all know that underneath the pleasantries, we all harbor fear and anger. It's always there. You can't think your way out of it. You can't force yourself to stop feeling it. The only freedom is in him. The cross is this mysterious miracle that takes all of that hatred and it transforms it into peace. Nobody understands how that happens. It's way too great a mystery to be understood intellectually, but you only need to look at history to know that it works. The Christian tradition is not perfect. I would never claim that it is, but it has transformed the world in ways that nothing else could.
the civil rights movement? Where did King get his idea of nonviolent resistance, if not from Christ? Wait a minute, you think? Hold on, didn't he get it from Gandhi? Where do you think Gandhi got it from? Gandhi was committed to a, a violent resistance against the British Empire until he read a book by Leo Tolstoy, a Russian Christian, called The Kingdom of God is Within You. He said that book changed his life. It showed him that he was wrong and that the gospel, in, its, in the way it treated nonviolent resistance, was true. He and Tolstoy began to write letters. These letters are amazing. I encourage you to read them. It's like these two men are learning together the truth of the gospel as these events are unfolding in real time. Now, Gandhi would never formally call himself a Christian, but it's very clear that he is living the gospel in a remarkable way because what he did is that he refused to judge the very people who were oppressing him, and therefore he broke the scapegoating mechanism because he insisted on seeing the humanity of his enemies. And he suffered for it. In his letters, he tells Tolstoy how all of these thousands of Indians were willingly going to prison instead of taking up arms against the British. He describes how their families were financially ruined because they couldn't work while they were in jail. He talks about how many times he has gone to prison and that his family members were going there with him because they believed in nonviolent resistance and that these were not prisons where you would simply sit around doing nothing. They were forced to do hard labor under brutal conditions. And yet he says to Tolstoy this, if the movement succeeds, it will be a triumph of religion, love, and truth over irreligion, hatred, and falsehood. And friends, that's the gospel. That despite the odds, love wins. And it's ultimately the only thing that can. Because when we, when we talk about the cross, we're not talking about some abstract idea. This happened. This is a historical event. Christ took the sin of the world into his body on a particular day in history. Three days later, he was raised, and therefore this peace that comes through that event is not some timeless, abstract, philosophical concept. It's a person whom we can relate to. He is our peace, Paul says. In his flesh, we are made one. And so I want to end my sermon with something that I hope is practical. If you're struggling with hatred, pray to the person who was on that cross because he is your peace. Stop finding scapegoats to project your anxiety onto. Turn to the person of Christ because he is your peace. He can do things that we cannot. Let's pray. God, on this weekend in which we reflect on the meaning of the American experiment, we seek the peace that only you can give. Soften our hearts to first look at our own sin before judging anyone else. Help us to see them as you see them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.